1: Welcome, listeners, back with another week of So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark?
2: I am holding it together, Walker, despite all efforts to the contrary. How are you doing?
1: I am fantastic. I'm ready. Played a lot of games again. It's been good weeks for that, at least. We are a board gaming podcast where we talk about all sorts of board games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about some board game news and why it really doesn't matter and then we're going to talk about our game of the week which is going to be praga kaput rigni pronounced i'm sure exactly like that
2: actually you're pretty close i mean given your tendency to insert r's and v's and change letters around i mean someone might quibble about some of the vowels but i have no notes
1: good stuff so walker what'd you play last week this week, I played a roll and write, Mark. I know we're not big on roll and writes, but this one seemed cool because it was called Paper Dungeons, a dungeon scrawler game. So it gives you this generic pad, which always has some basic walls on it and some, uh, some minions and stuff. And then you, there's 12 different scenarios and they're going to add, tell you to add some more permanent walls and tell you where the big monsters are and you're going to roll some dice and you're going to pick some dice and you're going to use these dice to move around the dungeon, to level up your characters, to brew potions, to forge weapons. And then after a few turns, you're going to fight monster one, number one, as long as you've gone through their chamber or are in their chamber when that comes up. And then you go a few more turns and then monster number two and a few more turns and then the final boss. And then that's the end and you add up all your points and it wasn't painful. Hmm. I played it solo and uh, played it just today with Huey. And there's very little player interaction, unfortunately. I'm there shocked. Is. There are, there are, like I said, every, the, all the papers are the same for like the the minions and some basic walls and some water hazards. And there's secret chambers that you go of course at one side of the map and in the other but there's also gems so when someone takes a gem off the map then the other player is to cross it off their map i see so endeth the player interaction
2: <laughs> how would you compare it to vengeance roll and fight because when you were explaining how you roll dice and you get a bunch of things and all of that is in service of fighting a monster i thought that that might at least give it some kind of structure the way Vengeance Roll and Fight kind of does. Because, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're rolling dice and you're crossing off things on a score pad, but it's in service of then going and clearing out a room full of goons who done did you wrong in Vengeance Roll and Fight. But you don't seem to be as pleased by this dungeon version.
1: So, it, like, there's no big, like, build-up dice roll to fight the monster. It's like, here's the monster. Add up all the levels of your heroes. Oh, that, that is your fight level. I see. Compare it to this chart of three different numbers that we put on this boss, and depending on what threshold you break is what your reward and penalty is going to be. Okay. Oh, sorry. I lied. There is some other player interaction in that particular part. Whoever got the highest on that particular score, because there's like the weapons that you forge and some cards that you get will increase that number. And of course, whoever gets the highest number will get the reward and the other person will get nothing. Okay. So if you're winning, you win more.
2: And like all tremendously interactive roll and write games, at the end of the game, whoever's the highest score wins. That's player interaction, right?
1: Exactly. And there are objective cards that everyone's trying to get the first two. And then you get some, you also get a benefit card. You get dealt two and you pick one that's either going to, you know, let you level up your guys or let you be safe from traps or other stuff. So there's some cards and all sorts of stuff. All in all, it wasn't a terrible experience. So, this was designed by Lindaro Piers and published by Meeple BR. And that is Paper Dungeons, a dungeon scrawler game. See what they did there? Very clever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I get to play Sheepy Time. Sheepy Time is by Neil Kimball and put out this year by EEG. I have been very curious about Sheepy Time ever since I started reading about it because it is a press your luck game, which is a genre that I often enjoy, but I have a number of common complaints. And Sheepy Time seemed to address several of them, and it was getting some good reviews from people that I trust. Sheepy Time is, first of all, aggressively delightful in its presentation of sheep everywhere. You're a dream sheep in Sheepy Time Walker, and the goal of the game doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The theming starts to fall apart the more you look at it, but nominally, the goal of the game is to fall asleep, and there's a nightmare that's chasing you. Now, you might ask, but if the Nightmare is chasing you, why would you want to go fall asleep? Surely the Nightmare would only find you after you... This is, these are the kinds of questions you should not ask, Walker. These are the kind of... You're a sheep. Your goal is, as a sheep, to jump over the fence as often as possible and don't get caught by the Nightmare. Thus endeth the thematic explanation, Sheepy Time. I had a blast with Sheepy Time. I played it twice, once with other players and once solo. Solo is a basic score attack mechanism. But Sheepy Time gets a lot of things right. For one thing, the tension gradually mounts. In the early rounds, and especially the early turns of the early rounds, you're just getting your sense of footing. You're possibly building up towards activating some powers later on. But near the end of the round, when it's a challenge to see whether you're going to finish the race first or the Nightmare finishes the race, you really care about what that next pull is. And every time someone pulls a card off the deck, you really care what it means. And then as the later rounds start coming up and people start threatening victory... It starts getting real tense and real engaging. You're constantly watching what everyone is pulling from the deck. It's really, really engaging in that sense. It's also good at triggering the kind of combos that I like. There's a certain kind of Euro game, mentioning no progress in particular... That leads to the kind of turns where someone's off in their little corner adding plus one point here and plus one rock there and oh, I get another point over this and did I add that bonus that gives me the extra gold for passing the thing? I can't remember anyway. And everyone else at the table is bored stiff not only because the turn is taking too long, but because nothing that's happening is remotely interesting. It's just a tallying of incremental tiny bonuses. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I I don't know why I'm... I'm, Uh, It
1: has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about later.
2: No, no, I'm just talking about Sheepy Time. Sheepy Time lets you build these kind of cool combos where you get to do something interesting and it resolves quickly. So you build towards seeding these various ability tiles that that are around the periphery of the board. And you can trigger them when you land on those spaces if you have tokens already laid on those tiles, which you have to work towards, or, or you might get at the end of the round as a Benny. And so you get to feel clever. You get to set things up. You get to feel like you, you've been rewarded for future planning, even though there's a fair amount of randomness. More on that in just a moment. And other players get to watch you do something cool. It's not like plus one gold here, plus one point here. It's I move ahead two spaces. I trigger this ability. It gives me some, uh, it lets me move ahead two more spaces. I trigger this other ability. I get some points. Yay. And it feels fun, which is honestly what I think we want out of games. As far as the randomness is concerned. I think it's calibrated pretty well. You can get some weird degenerate situations where the Nightmare advances way too quickly. But when I first read about the rules, in Sheepy Time, you have exactly two cards in your hand. And I immediately thought, what, is this some sort of love love letter nonsense where not a whole lot happens and you don't have a whole lot of control? I was really pleasantly surprised at how much forward planning Sheepy Time gets out of a scant two-card hand. And honestly, I think it works out really well. I think with three or four-card hand, you'd have a little bit too much analysis paralysis, leading to the situations where someone's staring at their hand of cards trying to plot out that heavy combo turn that I talked about and so it two cards works out just fine it also you have to be careful about this the hand sizes because that will influence how fast the nightmare moves anyway sheepy time is a delightful game it is visually delightful it is very very approachable in terms of rules load and it leads to some interesting tension some satisfying moments and some great ability chaining in a satisfying way i am a huge fan of sheepy time and i look forward to playing it some more nice is the is the art
1: adorable and amazing?
2: It is. It's so adorable that even in the cardboard sprues where you punch out the tokens, there's yet more art just talking about how fun it is to punch out game components and so forth. I was actually shocked when I was just thinking about it casually about how many games prominently feature sheep. Uh, And I'm not talking about even like Agricola or Caverna or something like that. There's Attribute, which is an absolutely wonderful word game, which is sadly out of print by Marcel-André kessler Merkel. It has the word cards with sheep and the sheep cards with sheep. That I typically, that's typically how I begin the rules explanation, and then I start confusing them even more with some of the redundancy and circularity. There's also Bedlam by my friend Chris Cheslick, which is a lovely game of iterated Prisoner's Dilemma, where you are trading sheep, and sometimes when you're trading these sheep, the sheep get stolen by wolves. Yeah, there's a lot of cute games with sheep in them. So it's a surprisingly crowded field. And I have to say that Sheepy Time by Neil Kimball is a solid entry into that august history. This is another light
1: game that I played. I'm, I'm working up to the big crunch, Mark. There was crunch this week. So Draftosaurus, it's sort of like another pseudo roll and write. Because there's nothing better than being handed a random bunch of dinosaurs and then rolling a die to tell me where I can place the dinosaurs that I don't even need. (laughs) So you take these COVID tokens and you pass them around the table and you slowly put them on your board. So it's got the typical roll and write, all these different places you can put the dinosaurs. You need like two of different color and you have the mating one over here. You have to put two of the same and Tyrannosaurus Rexes are worth many points. I really like there was this, there's this like this default spot. It's sort of like the court of miracles. Like if you have nothing to do with, if you have nothing to do, you just toss the dinosaur into the river, right? So I thought that was uh, pretty hilarious. (laughs) I
2: didn't immediately make that association, but thank you for framing it that way. I will never see it any other way.
1: I also, we also played with the, there's an aerial expansion. Apparently there's two expansions. There's one that goes on the top and one goes on the bottom. The bottom one is some sort of river expansion that we didn't have at the time. The top one is the aerial expansion. So it's just more ways to trigger combos and, or sometimes get dinosaurs you need. Cause you sort of seed the board and it was sort of clever in a way, right? So instead of yet again, changing how many dinosaurs go in the bag, instead because you're, at, you're adding pterodactyls in. So instead of changing up the mix, you just take out dinosaurs and you put them on this aerial expansion board that you can get in other ways. So you're not changing the mix of the bag, you're just putting them out so you can actually access them. They're your dinosaur eggs. So all in all, it wasn't a terrible game, but yet another pseudo roll and write where you don't get much choice. There's always the obvious choice. It's like, well, you roll the die, you can only put it in the woods... So I guess I'm going to put it here.
2: Yeah, the interaction yeah. of the die with the drafting, I think, leads to awkward corner cases and really serves to undercut any other appeal the game might have. I agree with you.
1: That is Draftosaurus. This is designed by Antoine Boza, which, which uh, confused me. Corinne Lebrat, Ludvik Montblanc, and Theo Rivera. And it's published by Ankama
2: Games. So, as some listeners may remember, I went to the United States of America, thanks to the opening of the border. When I was in the United States, I sought to acquire one of the things that you cannot get in Canadian retail... And that is the Disney Gargoyles board game called Disney Gargoyles Awakening. I am a big fan of Gargoyles. Gargoyles, for those of you that are not familiar, is a 1994 cartoon which is about a mega billionaire who appears to be friendly but in point of fact is involved in uh, uh, destroying the world. So in other words, it has no resonance for anything that is happening contemporaneously. It's aged very poorly in that sense. Uh, some other themes of the show involve prejudice and attempted genocide. So again, like, you know, things we only talked about in the 90s. Nothing nothing that has any salience whatsoever for 2021. Disney Gargoyles Awakening was released roughly the same time that Ravensburger released another themed Italian game, namely Alien Fate of the Nostromo. Uh, sorry, Alien Fate of the Nostromo. But Alien Fate of the Nostromo has since made it to Canada. Gargoyles has not. So here's the thing about Gargoyles. It is yet another cooperative chuck dice to kill things game. And that is a very, very crowded field. We have our favorites. My, pro- my favorite is probably all told Street Masters still. And in that sense, it's a very mediocre pedestrian design. It's very, very quick, which is nice. Also, borderline trivially easy. There was this idea of a day-night cycle in Gargoyles. Uh, The characters in the show were only active at night, and during the day, they they literally turned to stone. And that was a major plot point in a lot of different episodes about either stalling for time because the humans needed the Gargoyles to wake up, or the Gargoyles stalling for time because they needed to get to nighttime because they heal at night. Anyway... I'm, I'm deep into the show, I could go into it a little more, but the game seeks to replicate this, there's a day-night cycle, uh, day triggers. I played the game twice, day never came. The game was entirely finished successfully before day happened even once, and even given that it's not super thematic because the gargoyles aren't particularly vulnerable, they, they'll be fighting against people that are active during the day, but then they heal during the day and the enemies don't really do much, it, it's bizarre. I like the fact they gave a head nod to the overall structure, but I don't think it was implicated very well. I enjoyed Gargoyles more than I should, because as I say, it was somewhat pedestrian, vastly too easy. It has a couple things going for it. Number one, there's a card play element that is pretty satisfying. Every character has their own unique deck, and they cost a certain number of action points to play. And initially, I was somewhat frustrated because the cards were very situational. But then I thought, actually, no, this is probably appropriate. You have to build towards using the cards. There are a couple cards that are no-brainers here and there. But by and large, the effective cards you have to actually plan to deploy, and it is worth it. So you're not going to be cycling through your hands a whole lot. You might play one or zero cards on a lot of turns, and that's all right. I actually appreciated that element. It's visually very appealing. It's on a very small scale, but it's got lovely little plastic miniatures, and it's got lovely cardboard terrain representing the skyline of New York, so the airy building is really tall. Police headquarters with its clock tower. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, those latter two buildings have to be disassembled and reassembled before every play. That's not awesome. I'm not a huge fan of that element. And honestly, if you have no enthusiasm for the theme, I think you should definitely pass on Disney Gargoyles Awakening. A lot of my satisfaction came from named characters doing things that were akin to the things that you've seen them do on the show. I was going to ask you how much of the enjoyment
1: was nostalgia and, and the hearkening back of, of childhoods long ago,
2: a solid proportion. It definitely elevated it from mediocre to pretty good. So, it really depends on whether or not you're in that same category of person if you've enjoyed the show. It might be worth a shot. I mean, I I definitely can't quote the price. This is a mass market thing like Ravensburger often does. It was 30 American bucks and you definitely get your money's worth in terms of components and in terms of scenario variety. There are a couple of different scenarios and they actually feel a little bit different. And there's actually a one-v-all scenario, which I haven't tried because that is not my preferred version of anything. So that was my experience with Disney Gargoyles Awakening, a mediocre, cooperative minion basher with some rather nice card elements and scenario differentiation and some pretty good thematic integration if you have an enthusiasm for the show. This was designed by Nate Heiss and put up by Ravensburger in 2021.
1: All right. So it's time for a little bit of crunch. Capstone Games put out a game called Imperial Steam. This is designed by Alexander Humer, and he's put out another game called
2: Lignum, which is Latin for wood, Mark. (laughs) I read up a little bit. Welcome to Walker's Language Corner. This has been the first and only episode of Walker's Language Corner. It sounds very interesting. It's all about uh, harvesting, you know, vast
1: swaths of wood and selling it at market. And and I guess there's some sort of uh, production of the wood as well. You go like right through eight years. But anyway. We're talking about Imperial Steam instead, though. And we're just going to skim the top because this is ridiculously... Crunchy. So let's just start with the very beginning of the game is there's this influence track and there's lots going on with this influence track. You make this one time secret bid to position yourself on this influence track and this is going to affect the turn order, what cities you can uh, buy workers from and how much keys are going to be worth because not only do the players go on this influence track, but the four major cities also go on this influence track. They'll go on a random spot depending on the setup. And it's said in the rules that you should make sure at least you bid as high as two cities, so then you'll have the uh, ability to buy workers from two different cities. Because if you don't do that, it means you've bid low, which means you're probably going late in turn order, and everyone will see that you only have access to the lower city, and everyone will buy their workers from there first, thereby driving up the cost. And you don't have any money. Everything in this game is tight. Money and resources, like I said, you start with very little, and you're already spending a majority of that for the secret bid. And there's an income phase, which is pretty well nothing. You start with one (laughs) hundred and twenty. You start with one hundred and twenty dollars, but you're getting like ten a turn back like you get 10 for a factory that's on your board and you might've converted some cars to passenger cars or you might've built other, sorry, stations, but even then they're only 10 each. So income is really nothing. Where you're getting your major money is delivering goods to the major cities, but it's not that easy. First, you have to build the track to the major cities. Then you have to build a factory to produce the goods because you can't deliver it from goods you have. You have to you know, have a factory produce the goods and then just deliver it that way and then the resources are tight. First of all, their cost is variable, whether they're available, even available or not, or how many are available, because you have to pre-order them, and it'll tell you each round how many you can pre-order. It could be anywhere from two to five. And then how much you can store a turn is ridiculously low because you have to build trains and stuff like that. So like I said, I'm not gonna go too much into it, but there's a lot here. You're building track to connect to cities, For bonuses and many other reasons, you're building trains so you can hold more goods and fulfill contracts. You're trying to attract investors and build up the price of your company so that when you sell your stock, it's at a decent price, which you better do because for every stock you sell is going to lose you 10% off your final victory point score. So, like I said, that's just skimming the top of Imperial Steam. It is a train game where you're delivering goods, where you're trying to uh, build this track all the way down to the bottom of the board to uh, Toulouse. And it is super tight. You know I mean? You're always starved for everything so if it's if it's that type of game like there's a lot of times i've complained about that games where you're just not having f- you're not having fun because you're constantly just handcuffed the whole time but this just seemed a little bit different just because there's so many things that seemed clever at the time i'm wondering if learning new parts of the game or like i lose interest because i've learned everything then this this handcuffing will start becoming a problem because just how they've paired the actions there's a it's uh you start with two workers, you start with two actions, then you get three, then you get four, and you slowly, as time goes by, you're going to get more actions. And the way they've paired the actions on these cards is very interesting as well, because if you put two workers on one action, then you're going to lose that influence that I talked about at the beginning of the game, and you're going to go down because you have more workers on one spot. And just the way they've put the same action on the same card you know, really affects what decisions you're going to make. It's not just, I'm going to do whatever actions I want. In all, it's a great game. I know we're going to be probably playing it a lot, so I'll have more to say later. And that is Imperial Steam.
2: Imperial Steam sounds clever. Which, if you're going to be a Euro game that's going to be crunchy, you might as well at least be clever. I don't know why I'm mentioning this in particular. I, you know, mentioning No Prague isn't particular.
1: Oh, we're in for it's going to be interesting at the end.
2: I suspect it might well be. I played Puerto Rico, which is something I haven't done in about 10 years and went to a local game store and somebody there wanted to play Puerto Rico. And we were certainly amenable. And so there were three people there, one of them who would played Puerto Rico a lot recently and two people who hadn't played in over a decade. And whatever you else you want to say about Puerto Rico, and I will have some things to say about it. The fact that after 10 years, I didn't even need a rules refresher. I just looked at the rules, squinted at the buildings a little bit, and then I remembered almost everything. I wouldn't be ready to teach the rules, but I didn't require any significant refreshers about how any of the systems worked. And this is not because I played Puerto Rico to death back in the day. I only played it about half a dozen times, and as I say, that the last playing was over 10 years ago. So that, I think, is a testament to how Euros can be. Euros can be a sort of pared-down sort of essentialist view of this is what we need in order to get the central thrust of the game through. And all those extraneous other bits and Mountains of Iconography, mentioning No Progress in particular, don't necessarily have to be there in every time. See, some people don't want to wait until the end of the show to hear what I have to say about we're just going like, to feed
1: them little bits you know, to the end, and then we're going to get to the end and say, well,
2: we pretty well said all we want to say about it. Uh, I'll drop it. I'll drop it. I apologize. It just, it's, <laughs> it just so happens that the things that i played, in some cases, have legitimately fed in very neatly to things that I'll have to say later. But anyway... I do wish to momentarily pause and offer another installment in a recurring series that I'm now going to offer, Mark's Rage Theater. Because the individual who played Puerto Rico a lot, he reminded us that he plays Puerto Rico a lot several times over the course of the game. And I had a question about how the mayor worked, because one of the salient features of Puerto Rico is that turn order really, really matters, and this is the relevance of the role selection. In fact, very often when we play role selection euros, I say, unlike Puerto Rico, it doesn't really matter who picks what. Everyone's going to probably get the same crack at the goods available.
1: This is what I had when I played Puerto Rico years ago, too. It's very much like Axe and Allies, where you know the opening move is very well dictated. And if you don't do what you're supposed to, then everyone looks at you like, you, oh, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. Okay,
2: well, that's a separate issue, right? That is why we stopped playing Puerto Rico well over 10 years ago. Because the locals had played a lot of Puerto Rico. And if you picked the wrong role at the wrong time and there was only ever one right role, they would accuse you of throwing the game out of, out of whack and be utter jerks about it. This did not occur during this game of Puerto Rico. But what happened was, there was some dis- dispute, mild discussion, not a dispute, as to a turn order situation. And I, my intuition was that the turn order of the mayor redounded to the benefit of the mayor. Whoever takes mayor gets to take the first slave off the slave ship. Yes, Puerto Rico has slavery in it, even though it calls it something else. That's a huge issue, which we haven't really talked about before. It's a it's commonly discussed issue of Puerto Rico. And the individual at the, the table, the new guy, said, no, 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 it starts to the player to the left of the mayor. And I said, so what? The mayor frequently only gets only as many colonists as everybody else? And he said, yeah, that's just how it works. And I said, that doesn't... S- I didn't say this. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. That certainly sounds contrary to everything Puerto Rico. But I was being a good boy. I didn't know this guy. And so I didn't even reach to the rulebook to clarify. I was like, that's fine. We'll just do it this way. We'll just do it this way. Later on, there was actually a question about the mayor that needed cons- consultation with the rulebook. So I t- took out the rule book, confirmed the rule, and then I looked to see that, sure enough, I had been right about how the mayor works, and another dude had been wrong. In other words... Turn order matters in Puerto Rico. Big shocker. And so I said, Oh, as it happens, the mayor does start by taking the first colonist off the colony ship. And he said, No, it doesn't. I play a lot of Puerto Rico. That's not how it works. And I said, oh, it's how it says it in the rule book. And he said, No, 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 no. It starts to the left of the mayor. I said, All right. And then I started reading from the rule book. Dude interrupted me to assert that I was wrong while I was reading verbatim from the rule book. I did not react well. I lost my temper. <laughs> I may have banged the table. I, didn't, I wasn't violent, but, I, but, but I, I banged the table in frustration, and I, I gently hurled the rule book towards him. I didn't strike him with anything about it. I just want to make clear, being interrupted is, is, is not one of my favorite things, especially when someone seeks to interrupt me when the second clause of my sentence was going to respond to the thing for which they interrupted me. Very few people accuse me of speaking too slowly, but somehow it seems that I speak too slowly when these people want to interrupt me all the time. Anyway. Just as a mild addendum to Mark Rage Theater, I just want to make sure everyone understands this. I then apologize for losing my temper. This dude, while reading the rules paragraph that said in black letters that he was wrong, never acknowledged that he was incorrect. After he read the rules Mark, paragraph, he silently closed it, the rule book and said nothing it, about it.
1: It's okay, Mark. It, it's over now. It, it's okay.
2: <laughs> he can't hurt me anymore.
1: Deep breaths. Yes, he, he can't hurt you
2: anymore. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico that that ends fabulous game that ends the latest installment of mark rage theater Puerto Rico's okay i i I enjoy it. it's fun. I remember its core systems fondly and indeed it does role selection a lot better than a lot of other euro games. At the end of the day, I think it can end up feeling scripted, even if you're not surrounded by experts. Sometimes your your plays seem a little bit forced because of the available roles to you. Very few of them do any well, good.
1: I, I wouldn't even say uh, well. What, what I was thinking was not even so much forced, but just obvious. Like I, I, right when the way the game state evolves, it's like well, I this. This occupation is available, it's I really need this. Or these are the goods that are available. Well, these ones are better than the others, or I need these, so why is it even a choice? Like I'm obviously I'm gonna take those first, right? Yes. Just seemed very obvious decisions uh, from way back when I played it.
2: Yes. Not all the time though. To be fair, it is not all the time. And there were several instances where I sat there considering what role to take and or how best to execute a role that had been chosen by somebody else. But I agree with you in terms of decision space, it tends not to be huge. So it's clever and it's engaging, but a lot of the decision making I think is undercut by that level of, you can call it forced or you can call it obvious, what have you. But I was very pleased to return to it. And it does, again, the fact that I remembered how to play 10 years on, is a testament to how clean and how the different systems hang together in a in a relatively conceptually coherent way. And that was satisfying from a design perspective as well as from a play perspective. And so that was my experience of Puerto Rico. I got to play bees.
1: Now, these weren't, these were alive bees. They yes. were Night of the Living Dead. They were not zombie bees, unfortunately. It's a shame. I was not playtesting Simon's upcoming bee game. Call us. So, this is a game designed by Dan Halstead and published by Next Move Games. And you're obviously flying drunken bees around (laughs) because they're they go every which way but forward so because they literally do not have a forward movement they have their longest movement is back diagonally back diagonally their forward diagonal movement is next next high and then their straight reverse they can go 3 squares the rest are like 5 to 4 so these bees are stumbling around this board <laughs> picking up nectar And so if you've played Sagrada before, you sort of know what I mean. As you're picking up nectar, you're putting it over on your little player board and you're you're to make these little shapes or designs or lines of different colored nectar to do scoring things. For cards, you have your own personal cards and public objective cards as well. You need to land on the nectar to pick them up and depending how hard, how far you moved to get to that space will dictate where you get to place them on your board. They all have to be adjacent to each other but you, you sort of have to maneuver your way around the board and it's very not painful game. Very interesting sort of figuring out how to get to where you're going because like I said you can't go directly forward. You sort of have to zigzag back and forth and you want to make sure you're at least getting a nectar turn. I thought it was a great a great little game. I'm just one of these things where I'm wondering if the setup time is, you know, cause putting all this nectar out on the board is kind of a hassle and set it because the board's all these hexes as well. So you're setting up this big hex Mac but then populating it with all these wooden cubes. And then it's, it's a quick little jaunt back and forth to pick up some nectar and then the game is over. So the setup time is almost half of what the gameplay is but still the bees are adorable if you see them and then like the the, how much they move is right on their base they're full colored little bees and they i would play it again in a minute and that is bees
2: on the topic of euros that are great and great to pull out we played keyflower and Keyflower, I think, is one of those paradigmatic Euros that is slightly interesting from a couple of well-worn mechanical perspectives. You know, everyone's done worker replacement, everyone's done auctions. I still haven't seen other games do what Keyflower does in terms of merging and interleaving the two together. Very satisfying. I always find it compelling and very confrontational. We were cursing each other out like crazy while we were playing Keyflower because of weird bids and actions that were taken, people activating our tiles when we didn't want them to, people bidding on our tiles when we didn't want them to. It was very, very enjoyable. I love Keyflower. Part of me wishes that I had a little bit more experience with the expansions, because I think I've only ever tried each expansion once or twice each. But honestly, the way we play Keyflower, which is to say every 6 to 18 months... It's not like exactly the tiles come up like, oh, this tile again. We're just, again, finding such satisfaction with the action selection and auction mechanism is really, really appealing. And again, a little bit like Puerto Rico, it's not like we have to constantly reread the rulebook every time we go back to it. Uh, I, I have no difficulty remembering how the core mechanisms work. I think people, the people who play Keyflower with us on the reg are in a similar position, and I think that's, again, a testament to clean, focused, coherent design. And the only uh, strange bit of confusion on the part of players was, why is Seabreeze spelled B-R-E-E-S-E instead of actual Breeze spelling? And we have to tell them, no, that's just because the designer, one of the designers, Richard Breeze, just likes to spell things after his own name, so... That's just going to be that way. Well, and plus Board Game Arena makes it so easy, right? Just like I talked about the setup.
1: Sometimes the setup for Keyflower can be a little bit of a pain, right? You know, especially when you have all of the expansions deciding which ones to use and and making the deck separate and doing, you know, all the objectives, whereas Board Game Arena sets it up immediately. I think they've cleaned it up a lot where there was a lot of problems with moving your workers around if you're outbid or undoing things. They seem to have, uh, f- you know, fix that up a little bit to make it a little more user-friendly because we I don't think we had any problems at all. A little bit of, I don't think there was any uh, mistakes. You know, like I said, I think there was a little bit of issue, but I don't think it led to any actual misplays.
2: Well, well, the system will not allow you to make illegal moves, but it will constantly offer you the opportunity to make illegal moves on Board Game Arena. And that's my key objection. It'll say, well, how would you like to bid on this? And you enter the bid and they'll say, oh, no, no, you're not allowed to bid that way. And I'm like, well, then why did you say I could? Why did you give me the little thing to click on if I'm not allowed to do it? It's just a strange choice from a design perspective. And as far as the setup is concerned, Board Game Arena only has the base game anyway. If they had the expansions, then yes, that would be an advantage because it would ease setup. Because I agree with you, that's one of the reasons why I haven't played the expansions very much. Integrating the expansions with the base game involves a lot of you know tile separation and shuffling and then collation at the end of the game when you're packing it away. But I'm perfectly happy to play Keyflower in person. I don't find the automation to be a significant boon. I'm happy to do it because it allows me to play with people at a far remove. And the Board Game Arena implementation is fine, just has a number of weird side edges. Uh, The fact that there's no undo at the end of the game when you're allocating things for scoring is a bit of a problem and does tend to lead to misplays. But fortunately, I remembered this, and so I was able to warn people. It's like, okay, be very, very clear. Every click is uncorrectable at the end of the game when determining scoring. So... Other than that, I agree the Board Game Marine implementation is perfectly serviceable. But I'm a big fan of Keyflower. I honestly think it is the best of the Key Series games and probably the best put out by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Breeze generally. Like the key part of Keyflower is, and I'm surprised that other games
1: haven't picked it up, once you start bidding a particular color on anything, whether it be someone else using someone else's tile or actually bidding for a tile. Once you establish color, then other people can only outbid you or use that tile in that same color. And it just leads to this really interesting mechanic on figuring out, because you can see the boats the term before and say, okay, there's not much green or there's not much yellow or whatever color. And so, you know, if you use that, that you are going to be safe. It's just a very, I just love everything about Keyflower.
2: Right there with you. And so that is Keyflower, published by R&D Games, 2012.
1: I played Lama Land again. I've already talked about it, so I won't say too much, except for the fact that it is designed by Phil Walker-Harding. It's very much a a Baron Park-type game. It is published by Lookout Games, and the difference this time is we played with the advanced objectives, the golden objectives. And how this changes up is that usually there is a whole set of objectives and everyone could accomplish them and just depending on how you got on that card first second or third would determine your points but with the gold objectives it's whoever has the most so it really doesn't it does matter I'll get to it. so it really doesn't matter uh, who gets to the card first you just have to have the most on there the reason why it matters who gets there first is if there's a tie right and there's not necessarily going to be a tie so why this is interesting is because you can you could only have one of the cards which isn't that many but no one's gone on that card at all. So in the last turn, you can sort of sneak in and get those points, even though you've hardly done anything towards that particular goal because you just have the most that is on that particular card. So it's at least it, it, it makes that whole mechanic, which didn't work in the first game. Where you're constantly shifting around the tokens, where you really, once you got to the top position, you really didn't want to move. You sort of just worked towards it, and everyone still sort of stayed stagnant. Where in this game, there was, I wouldn't say constant movement, but more movement on those particular boards, which seemed a little more interesting.
2: I am very keen to try Llama Land. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, we got a review copy of
1: Cellulose. So this is like an oh, actual. Oh, that's how sort of it's a-
2: pronounced. I was so confused. I thought it was a game about parole and I thought it was pronounced "cell you lose.
1: Oh, well, at first when I, when they asked us to look at it, I thought it was like about people in prison, like it's a cell louse, like either infestation of a prison or he was a snitch and you had to shiv him. I wasn't sure. But this is actually about plants and how plants grow. It's an actual, I would say almost like a learning educational game. Because everything is apparently exactly how it works inside a plant. There's actually a side book that you can read, The Science Behind Cellulose. And it's a worker placement game. And in that particular instance, it is a straight up, like I opened the book because it's like, oh, we're gonna play this tomorrow. I should learn how it it plays. And I read, and I, and I closed the book, and 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 was done. Because it's pretty much <laughs> you go to the spaces and you get what the spaces give you, and then you use those things to get to get the stuff. But there is a little bit more to this game, and and I and I saw that in the game. It said you get these cards. I wasn't about to read through all the cards and figure out what they all do. I said, okay, hopefully there's a whole other mechanism. Of those cards that will make things interesting. And sure enough, there was. What you're doing is it's like a normal sort of resource conversion. You're trying to make these scoring. Uh, uh, the, to make the cell wall, but you have a, a, there's a decision space there. Are you going to put them on the wall to score the points or are you going to convert them into this like very rare resource that you can only use on the cards? So it's a good choice there. And there's also this central board where when you uh, take water, you can leave some of it on the board in the central area for the plant and everyone has their own spot. And then whoever has the most there will get some free actions next turn. So there's like a cool area majority thing going on there. And then there's another whole sideboard, which is sort of the income board. And some of the things that you're doing on the main board will move you up and up the stock route and down the route track and how far you move, you're going to get more income every turn. So there is a little bit more stuff than a normal worker placement. I will definitely play it again. It's definitely a game that would teach children how this stuff works, and it would make it very interesting, I think. This was designed by John Kovu and Steve Sheppelhorst, and it's put out by Genius Games. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So Mark, we both love My City, Right. Yes, absolutely. And we both and we both love rolling rights, right?
2: Uh,
1: so we have a my city rolling right.
2: Woo! Of course we do. <laughs>
1: so speaking speaking of rolling rights though, on that topic. Next week, this week we played uh, we played some Llamaland on stream and we played a bunch of other games. This coming week, we're going to play some Roll and Writes so the listeners can participate. We are going to play Paper Dungeon that I just talked about and we're going to play Cartographers. So we'll have links to the sheets that you can download so you can play along with us if you wish. Coming up on Twitch next Saturday, 10.30 a.m. Eastern.
2: GMT Games has announced some of its upcoming projects there is going to be an interesting-to-me-looking solitaire game called I, Napoleon, from Ted Racer. Ted Racer was the designer of the CDG about World War One called Paths of Glory. Apparently, that that was a big
1: problem back in France in the day. There was a lot of people who thought they were Napoleon. Maybe you should get that checked out, Mark. That's a problem.
2: <sighs>
1: You're... I'm right, is what I
2: am. <laughs> <laughs> I, Napoleon, will allow you to step into the boots of everyone's favorite warmonger, And I am looking forward to seeing what he does with the format. GMT has been experimenting a little bit more with solitaire, campaign-y kind of narrative stuff-ish. And some of those projects are coming out the pipe. And as a sucker from the Napoleonic Wars, I'm keen to see what they do with iNapoleon.
1: Sorry, I don't usually like to talk about games that I don't know a lot about, but this looks very interesting and boards and dice usually puts out a lot of good games. So August 2022 is a game called terracotta army. It's not so much of the, it's like, I think it's about building the original clay soldiers and you're putting them into groups on the board. There's no really images and stuff, but it all, it seems very interesting looking forward to seeing what it's all about.
2: We mentioned a while ago that Tasty minstrel games, has effectively uh, bowed out of the games production business. And the remaining stock, and this includes a number of nominally Kickstarter-exclusive stuff, like the deluxe version of Yokohama Duel, the deluxe version of normal Yokohama, you know, deluxe versions of a lot of of their games that were Kickstarter exclusives are now being sold off through Cool Stuff, Inc., which is an American online e-tailer. And so if you want to get those, again, nominally Kickstarter exclusive versions of some Tasty Mitchell stuff, this might well be your last chance to get it at retail. So sad passing for a prominent publisher, but at the very least, there is going to be some deals to be had.
1: It's true, you didn't mention Crusaders. I was, th- I've been thinking of Crusaders. I actually looked it up on Cool Mini just today to see if they and they do have the total Kickstarter package of Crusaders as well. Yeah, I know you didn't like it,
2: but it was all right. It was
1: aight. Lastly, for me, Black Friday sales. That's it. Okay, check them out. <laughs> Maybe some people have forgot. Usually, they're all the big. You know, e-retailers and or companies have big Black Friday sales. So if you need to increase your collection, now is a good time to check them out.
2: Really? I, I'm surprised because I didn't know that it was Black Friday or Cyber Monday or anything like that because no company has sent me any promotional notices at oh, all stop. about their Black Friday. Now I'm just complaining about the fact that every time you buy anything, you immediately get signed up for five mailing lists. And so I get the same notifications from a half dozen different people every anyway. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Praga Kaput Regni, designed by Vladimir Suki, published by Delicious Games in 2020. So, Vladimir Suki is basically the not-Vladikovatl of Czech Games Edition. He has put out a number of games through CGE, uh, a sort of curated short list of some of his... Uh, designs that we have played is 2009's Shipyards, 2011's Last Will, 2017's Pulsar 2849, which is probably my favorite of his offerings, 2018's Underwater Cities, and uh, since putting out Praga at Regni, there's also going to be 2021's Messina 1347. Now, not all of those are through CGE, but most of them are. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Praga at Regni?
1: Well... In Praga, you're usually lamenting about the good old days where you used to take turns as <laughs> Billy combos yet another ability to decide what upgrade to take. Oh, looks like he's wrapping up. No, never mind. He spends a couple of windows and he's getting another entire turn. I think I'll have a nap. Or you win Praga if you get through the entire game without forgetting a single bonus of some kind.
2: <laughs> Why does Billy got to be that way? Was he raised wrong? Billy's a jerk.
1: Or... It's really Witchstone advanced, because like Witchstone, you have an array of double hexagons, which each have two actions, and depending on which one you choose, it's going to set off a crazy chain reaction of combos.
2: It's funny you mentioned Witchstone, because I was actually thinking about Witchstone while reflecting on my feelings about Capital. Capitragne. Witchstone, for me, is an example of, if you're going to be derivative and a sort of a point salad euro, you would best have some sort of clever action selection mechanism. This has been a frequent hobby horse of mine over the show, uh, a lot. Praga Cabot Reddy nominally has this action drafting thing, whereby there's a bonus and there's one of two possible actions you can pick, and if you pick an action that ha- that was just picked recently, you pay some gold. If you pick an action that hasn't been picked recently, you get some points. It's fine, it's functional, it's serviceable, uh, but honestly, I don't think it's it's very good at introducing tension or particularly pointed trade-offs. And honestly, I I I feel it's kind of dull and when I compare it either to something like Witchstone which has this interesting geographical action selection mechanism whereby you're encouraged to ch- make geographical groupings and chain off of your existing board or if you even compare it to some of the offerings uh, uh some of the other offerings of Vladimir Suki like Pulsar 2049 which had I thought a pretty cool dice drafting mechanism I'd rather have my point salad euro kind of thing with a mountain of different icons and different kind of sub actions to be married to something a little bit clever rather than something like Praga Cup and Regmi.
1: That being said My first thing I want to talk about is the physical parts of the game, and that is part of it. It has this giant action wheel where you're going to choose one of these tiles, and when you're done, you're going to put it back in the wheel, and this whole giant dial is going to turn and rotate all the actions into the new categories, like you said, either pay or free or get victory points. And I do think there is a little bit of tension there because, as we know, uh, I'm going to talk more about eggs later, but we'll just say there is uh, an egg resource and it is, they are very hard to get. And one of the bonus actions for taking an action is to get an, is a, a chance to buy an egg. And there's only two on the wheel. And there's also more on this later, special buildings. And not only do you have to have that bonus come around to where you can get it, but it also has to have an action tile that lets you build a building. So those two things have to line up in order for you to get the special building. So I think there is a little bit of tension there but that being said there's that giant wheel it has a wooden cube in it that actually will drop down into the board will tell you when the round ends i thought that was interesting there's these giant 3d buildings of the, of the hunger wall and the cathedral there is a 3d uh bridge there's your own player board that has these dials that won't turn a certain distance because there's a a, a cube in them and that will remind you to remove the cube when you get it and i'll give you bonuses as well all of these things i think it makes just the game you know,
2: sing a little bit. I agree with you that the physical gimmicks are really cool when they are functional. I really think they're really neat. So the the, the hunger wall in the cathedral. Uh, who cares? The bridge, whatever. That's just cosmetic bling. But the fact that there are some cubes used in some pretty interesting ways in these double layer player boards and/or game boards that physically block you from doing the thing you're not allowed to do until you remove the cube by some other mechanism, that was really neat. And that was one of your key selling points when you were initially introducing me to the game, and I absolutely agree with you that it does elevate the game somewhat. I say somewhat because the bits where it's functional are helpful, but it's not like it only functions by virtue of the physical gimmick. It's it's just a little value-added proposition.
1: Agreed. So so there's upgrading your player board, which is what we just talked about, like removing cubes and stuff. And you're increasing your income because you have these income tracks at the bottom. And they're telling you how much you're going to get when you take, you know, the draw action. And you can increase that so you get more stuff. So you can get these eggs that you're talking about or victory points or books. You're adding upgrade tokens to this board as well. When you get a certain point, you can start plugging in tokens. They'll give you even more stuff when you receive the goods. You're unlocking seals when you get to the end and you're unlocking these cubes, which is, I thought was a very interesting mechanism because there's a lot of places you need to use these cubes. Like when you want to claim a building, when you want to claim the seal and you really need to figure out when to get them because if you need to claim one of these things and you don't have the cubes then guess what you don't get to play it
2: one thing i'd like to note about the player boards is that actually going to lead to a a broader complaint i have which is that the way the income tracks handled every time i play praga at regni i have to remind myself about how counterintuitive those income tracks are because almost always in euro games when you slot in a cube on top of a symbol if it's a cost, you have to pay it then, or if it's a Benny, you get it right then. Not so in Praga. If you cover it with the cube, nothing happens yet. Furthermore, almost in almost every other income track, what you do if your cube is at the 8, that's how much income you get. Not so in Praga. It's the number to the left. That number under the cube that you're at? No, 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 no. That means literally nothing. It's the only other one there. Now, this wouldn't be a problem, not for the fact that you're already swimming in a whole bunch of other icons and a bunch of iconography, and the other tracks work the way you tracks would normally work, but these tracks work in a special way.
1: I was about to say, I thought you were going to, we weren't going to cover that, but literally the tracks that are two centimeters away work in the exact opposite way, where you yes. get, you know, what's it on and below. I just cannot believe... They made two different mechanisms on the same board.
2: And it's your standard medium-heavy Euro game. There's lots of icons for everything, and I'm not going to ding it for that necessarily. It's not its not a unique problem. But when you know that there's already going to be this information load, why are you trying to, in some cases, literally reinvent the wheel in a way that doesn't help the user experience? I remember reading an article a while back in terms of video game design saying, look, if you're designing a platformer or almost any game where a character can jump, you need an excellent reason to not put that button either at the X or the B, whatever whatever controller you happen to be using. And it really feels like Praga Regni addresses that logic. And Vladimir Sikki is saying, hold my beer. I can reinvent tracks. I know you've played a million different Euro games with income tracks before. I'm going to change how it all works. And it's going to work, except it doesn't
1: it's true and not only do you have one player board but you have two you also have an action board which is a hexagon that has one of all the different actions that are available over on the big action wheel and you need this because you can upgrade these actions there's a there's a row of tiles that you can pick up and they'll cover up the same action as the tile so when you take that action now it'll do something else on top of that there are also symbols on the outside that you can line up with other tiles that will get you even more bonuses and there's mortarboards on those tiles that you have to make sure you go up on the mortarboard track.
2: Yes. This is one of the many types of bonuses that you might be apt to forget, and this actually feeds into the overall sense of sameness that I get from Prague Capit Regni sometimes. It's the traditional problem I have with point salad euros. It doesn't really matter what you do. You're going to get there at the end of the day. You can go over and get a whole lot of fish or get a lot of cabbage or get a lot of whatever. In Prague Capit Regni, you might think that there's some sort of big trade-off between upgrading your income tracks and, say, getting new, uh, getting upgraded actions and actually exploiting those upgraded actions. To a certain extent, that is true. But to another greater extent, it doesn't really matter. Because while you're just upgrading those tracks, and you might figure, well, I'm not really getting anywhere. I might have to start pumping them later. Sure, you might want to pump them later. But just in the process of upgrading them, the game is disgorging bonuses at you. Buying these technologies to upgrade your actions is just, they're, again, disgorging more bonuses at you. And so you don't feel that kind of tension that you get in some other Euro games where it's like, do I invest in infrastructure or do I exploit the infrastructure I have? Well, in Praga, it doesn't really matter because you're just going to be drowning in bonuses and things to chain anyway.
1: It's true. and This will lead into more. I have about replayability later, but I'll go on. I'll talk about that later. Next up, let's talk about the buildings. There are two different types of buildings you can actually build. One are the blue buildings that you put on your sideboard, and one are the red buildings. So the blue buildings give you red tokens and the red buildings give you blue tokens. Because of course. Because of course. And this all sort of dovetails over to the the hunger wall and the cathedral because where you advance on there is going to make your blue tokens and your red tokens uh, more points. And of course, the red you know, they're the vice versa. So you can't just pour everything into one because then all of those tokens you get will be worth zero points. So you have to, you know, form some sort of balance or or get the movement from somewhere else.
2: To a large extent, and this is just one example, I'm not suggesting that I'm a better designer than Vladimir Suki. I'm certainly not. He's a talented guy and I'm not. But. This is an example of where I think they could have pared things down and the game would have, would have improved as a result. The red buildings that you actually place on the board do introduce some of the seldom encountered player interaction in Praga Capit Regni, because you're competing for these bonuses, for these so-called plazas. Some tiles help you compete, some tiles don't. But then, of course, there are all the other tiles you buy that don't even go on the main board at all, the aforementioned wall tiles. They're just worth some other weird sort of non-triangular endgame scoring formula that will disgorge you a whole bunch of bonuses. If they'd just gotten rid of that other type of tile, if they'd even gotten rid of either the Hunger Wall or the Cathedral, because they're functionally identical to a large extent, uh, then you could have instead had just one type of building where you were more frequently claiming building sites that other players wanted and or competing for those plaza sites. That I think would have brought it down towards a development track that I would have appreciated more in terms of game design.
1: True, but I just feel that that's been done already. I, d- I didn't mind the balance, the having to get both, where, where it was like the red buildings were the big payoff, right? Where they had they did much more stuff, better bonuses, more victory points. But there was that player interaction. You had to be careful where you put them. You had to make sure you had the majority. Whereas the blue buildings were safer because they all they did were they the they only went on your own personal board. But there was no way anyone could stop you from doing what you were doing with them there. And they had minor bonuses and like you said, an overall scoring. But you had to keep a balance, right? And I I, I know I like that.
2: This is but this is class- First of all. That has been done before. Don't claim that this is somehow tremendously novel. I didn't say my that this was isn't. done no, no, no. This not. is all well-trod ground in both directions. I wasn't suggesting this would be novel. I was said it would make the game more streamlined and emphasize the player interaction more, which are two things that I would have appreciated. But I, I think you're overselling the difference between the red buildings and the, the blue buildings, if we're going to call them that. Because, yeah, the red buildings give you more points now, but the blue buildings are eligible for endgame score bonuses too. So at the end of the day, you're probably going to get the same amount of points regardless of what type of building you specialize in. It's possible. All right, let's move on to what we've already talked about, the
1: Hunger Wall and Cathedral. It's this big, these big 3D buildings, and they have sort of like this the uh a grid that you can move to the to the left or to sort of the right of and you can advance up and sometimes it's a little bit of a puzzle because some of the spaces will give you victory points or bonuses and or let you move for free so you sort of like plan your path and you can sort of maybe work towards that but i i i don't do that i just sort <laughs> of you know the bonus says i can move there and it moves and if it happens to land on something then i get it and i say ooh yeah i totally planned that but i i didn't but yes, but you could if you knew, you know, you're starting to master the the me- mechanics and you can sort of get the nominal way up the path because the more, the higher you go, the more victory points you'll get. And the more to the left or right you move, the more points that those tokens will be worth.
2: And this is an example, I think, of where the game could have differentiated things more to make the game slightly more interesting and have a slightly more nuanced decision making. Because as I said, there's there's functionally no difference between the hunger wall and the cathedral. They work the same. The grid of things that they have on when you're moving your cube around are the same. They're just put out in different areas. If they had been substantially different in terms of the benefits they gave or or in terms of the bonuses that they gave out, it could have all just been printed on those physical buildings. It would not have increased the rules load considerably or at all, but it would have differentiated them possibly in an interesting way. Again, I'm not saying that they should have done that and would have made a better game. I'm saying that as it is, it was just two more things that that could have been interesting but weren't. Uh, I mean, the Hunger Wall, it's interesting that it's called the Hunger Wall. It was called the Hunger Wall because it was built during a period of famine, and apparently working on the wall was one of the few ways to reliably get food support from the government. There's also a legend that King Charles might have actually worked on the Hunger Wall himself, but, you know, records from the 14th century are pretty scarce. So that was kind of cool. Does it work any different from building a cathedral? Nah, you're just building something. Let's go
1: into some of the other stories, because as... As a game, it has two of the weirdest resources, which we already talked about, <laughs> eggs and windows. So you use windows as a resource and or eggs, and it says there's a legend that they actually, you know, uh, you know, beat raw eggs into the mortar to make it stronger. And there's nothing, no truth behind this. They've done
2: tests. and Some tests have indicated yes. Some tests have indicated maybe no. There's some controversy. I actually qu- quite appreciate that. It's called Bohemian Sandstone. And legend has it that they would beat egg yolks into it as an additional uh, bonding agent. But we're not entirely certain if that happened.
1: And that one other story which I found was hilarious. The one village that was told to send all their eggs were confused about exactly what they wanted. So they hard-boiled all the eggs first and then sent them so none of them would break. I thought that was hilarious because they had no idea.
2: As much as I appreciate that little flourish, I think it is a little bit undercut by how incredibly implausible it is about how difficult it is to get chicken eggs in this game. You've got all the money in the world. You're drowning in royal and religious favor. You've got more stone than you know what to do with. But you cannot find a chicken egg. And honestly...
1: It's it's, it's the perfect egg, Mark. It's just not any egg. (laughs) It is the
2: egg. And there's actually a consequence of this that I find a little bit less satisfying. My experience has been, I'm by no means any expert, my experience has been, if you have an egg and there is a, an action available that uses the egg, you do it. Furthermore, if it is the case that that action that uses the egg happens to be on one of the bonus spaces that allows you to buy the egg, you take that one and you laugh your way to the bank. And that and that's just all. it's an obvious move. It's like what you were talking about in terms of Puerto Rico. You have the egg available, is the action there? Take it. And so rather than adding to more trade-offs or more nuanced decision-making, it was just the obvious thing to do, in my experience
1: i I can partially agree with you sometimes there is that that plaza that you want the age the majority in right then, so you you will take a different action or one of the actions has spun around so far that it's worth you know several victory points so that is you know, true. but it's those those cases are are seldom, but you are correct if the egg one is available, it is normally taking regardless of whether you needed the action or not when that is the case I th- I find it interesting the fact that when you want to do something and you're low on resources, you might think that taking the action that lets you draw your income is the way to go. But like we've talked about, there's so many bonuses that there is a way to figure it out that if you do it, you get a certain, you know, wheel bonus and this bonus, you're going to generate the resources in other ways. Yeah. So it's not always cut and dry. It's like, I need resources, take resources. I need this. I take that. It's, there are, there are, different ways you can figure out to do things.
2: And I kind of like that. Eh, I mean, I appreciate the fact that it's not cut and dried. You're absolutely right. If it were cut and dried, that wouldn't be good. But the way the bonuses work, you often end up in the situation that seems to epitomize point-salad, Euroe irrelevance. Because if you need gold, you don't necessarily take the gold action because you might take the brick action. Because maybe the, the the stone action, rather, the stone action will give you more as much gold as you need, or maybe even more gold than the gold action. Or... You're activating the income action, not because you need the resources, but because it's disgorging all these other points and other random nonsense at you. So at the end of the day, everything feels smoothed out and genericized in this awful, awful way. And you feel like you're just an accountant for weird extraneous bonuses rather than actually making resource management decisions. And then there's the halftime
1: show. So halfway around, then you get to take off all the tiles and replace them with level two tiles, which I like, right? I'm all for graduated decks. I'm all for making things more, I shouldn't say more complicated, but just give a, you know, better bonus towards the end game as opposed to just the same old tiles over again. And then there's the tech tiles. So as you go up, I don't get alarmed, but when you go up this track, you get another bonus, yeah. So there's more tactiles. These are the, there's four different levels of them as you go up this other track. And the first two levels give you permanent abilities that will modify other actions. I.e. So we'll give you more forget. bonuses, more bonuses that you won't remember to do. And then level three and four are thank God one time instant effects that as soon as you <laughs> get them, you get to do it and then don't have to worry about them anymore. Huzzah. Huzzah. And then there's the road where you spend these eggs like you've already talked about. You move along the road, you get to the bridge, and then you get your big endgame scoring tokens. What do you think about the gold and silver end game scoring tokens?
2: Honestly, it was just a wash of more end game bonus considerations. I'm going to be competing for plazas. I'm going to get some seals. I'm going to get the Hunger Wall on Cathedral. I'm going to get the gold, and I'm going to get the silver. Oh, jeez.
1: I do, I do want to go back to that. That is one way how the Hunger Wall is different than the Cathedral. Because on the one, if you do get to the top, you do get another... End game scoring tile. Oh, that is, is true. The other one you do not.
2: Absolutely right. So
1: I'm not saying it is a huge difference, but it it is something that makes. No, them
2: it, it's gesturing towards the kind of difference I wanted to see more of. No, that's absolutely right. And then lastly, for me, I have
1: the repay the replayability. All right. Sock it to me. I don't think there is any. I don't mean like replaying the game. I mean, are there elements? in the box that change it up every time, okay? So over and above the fact that the plazas that you place on the board will be different when you put them, the buildings will come out in a different order. The actions, the starting actions on the wheel might be in a different orientation at the beginning of the game. Uh, When you draw tech tiles, you'll get a different, you know, draw or uh, the end of the road tiles that we just talked about when it's your turn to draw them, they might be different. Above that, they also have uh along the road, you can put different road stops in. They have like tiles that you can put over top. They have overlays for the cathedral and the bridge that will change that up every time you play. And they also have all of the action tiles that we talked about on the wheel. They have an alternate side. So this gives you the impression that you can change the game up every time you play. But like you've alluded to, all this means is Guess what? Instead of having this wave of different bonus actions, you'll have this other wave that is practically the same wave.
2: So, not to harp on about how great Reiner Canizia is and how Tigers and Euphrates is an amazing game, but this to me, I think, is a, is a good object comparison between Prague Capit Regni, which has variable setup, and something like Tigers and Euphrates, which has no variable setup. Tigers and Euphrates starts the same way every game. And yet by the end of the game, you can look at a map that's going to be radically different from one game session to the next. And you're going to remember that sometimes the major conflict happened between two minor kingdoms over green, or two major conflicts over red, or that massive war over that final treasure in the middle where three, three colors were implicated and two players were fighting when they didn't even start the fight. And the geography of the game evolves in interesting different ways as opposed to your traditional point-salad Euro, of which Praga Capit Rigney is a prime example, where at the end of the day, you're going to get your hundred-some-odd points from a variety of different sources, but whether you get the 20-point bonus from the Hunger Wall or the 15-point bonus from the Seal, where you got to sell your rock at the end of the game for points, I mean, does it really matter? It's six of one half of it is the other, generally speaking, as far as I'm concerned.
1: I'm the opposite. Even though I was negative in some points, I really enjoy this. and I think I enjoy it for the same reasons I like Witchstone. I really like finding the path that is the most interesting like where you're going to hit the most bonuses how you can set up that big turn how you can get to what you want in that turn in several different ways if you can just puzzle it out i just enjoy that type of game i enjoy the look of this game like i said the physical the physicality of the dials and the buildings and just the overall feel of it i it is a game i'm definitely keeping on my shelf
2: i absolutely agree that this is comparable to witchstone in a number of ways And I prefer Witchstone. I think it's a better example. It has less icon load and different extraneous bonuses and has a more compelling action selection mechanism as far as I'm concerned. To sum up for me, I mean, there's a certain school of thought which is hostile to modern Euros, and it's been around for at least 20 years in the hobby, that overgeneralizes designs like this to all Euro gaming. You know... These are sometimes designs by Feld, or by Sookie, or by Lacerda. You know, point-solid designs that are sometimes deficient in narrative, sometimes coherence, sometimes cohesion, usually player interaction, and usually absent much editorial voice. Except for, this is the next game from that designer. And there's absolutely a market for these games, and there are people who definitely want to play them over and over, and want to play the next one, and that's fine. And if you're that one of, one of those people, I think Pragya Regney is a fine entrant in that tradition. I don't hate Pragya Kapitregni, I'll even play it if it's put in front of my face. It's just, I've been playing things like this for about a quarter century now, and this is not a particularly stellar example of that field. Now, I just want to say, though, that those people who say that all Euros are like this, I think they're fundamentally wrong, because from this year alone, we have seen Euros that have a spark of creativity or simplicity or coherence or narrative and editorial voice. Things like Cryo, things like Furnace, Whale Riders, Excavation Earth, that's just from this year. Not necessarily top tier A1 designs all, but they're all at least doing something a little bit different and a little bit cleaner and a little bit more compelling than a lot of these other things that have been released this year. So I don't want to generalize about Euro, I'm still a huge Eurogamer fan and there's still a lot of interesting stuff being done but I don't think you can point to Project Capitragni as an example of interesting things being done in the Eurosphere. Agreed. And that's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledatice.gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at games at gmail.com or on Twitter at SoWrongGames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At long last, listeners here at Spike presents Massive Theater, we are putting to bed, at least for now, the Avatar cartoons with the Legend of Korra season four. Walker, your thoughts?
1: Well, this is my least like part of the whole Avatar series, Mark, and it sort of, it sort of. Is at a perfect time because at the same time this big squid game thing started and how everyone said how great squid game is. No, I'm just going to – the one part I didn't like about it, like in squid game, I thought the games were interesting. I liked, the, you, know, how, you know, how they played out and that. But the fact that they, they sort of fell back on old anime tropes, I felt. It's like where you take this thing and you beat that main character down on. Over and over and over again. They did that in Squid Game. It's like, I understand. He is poor. He is desperate. I understand that. Can we please stop and move on? And they did this in this season. It was just Cora being beaten down over and over again. And I just say, I understand. Oh, wow. I get it. Can we j- just move on? <laughs> that was the
2: one thing I liked about this season. I thought I liked how it dealt with trauma because there was this, you know, the poison was used as a metaphor. It wasn't just the poison. She was literally holding on to the trauma. And I like stories about trauma and I like stories about people trying to overcome trauma and move past it. And I felt that this was actually done a little bit better than one of the things you really liked about The Last Airbender, where, where, Ang's ambivalence about being the Avatar. I, I thought that it wasn't really dealt with clearly enough in that show, but here it was literally like, yeah, you almost died. This guy did this terrible, terrible thing to you, uh, but you got to move on and you can't let it define you. And I thought that that was kind of cool.
1: Well, I didn't mind it over at all, but just the fact that she was just getting her butt kicked oh, so sure. many times over <laughs> and over again. It was like... Enough, we get it. She is not 100%. That's okay, true. can we just...
2: Yes, the way that it was manifest in repeated fight scenes where she uh, was not her normal self, I, I agree with you. And for no other reason than it made the fights less interesting, too. Uh, the, that fight with her and Kuvira in front of the army was kind of boring, and they, they, they needed to make it more salient. I mean, honestly, I agree with you that season four was in some ways the nadir of the show, because... The incoherence about balance was at, was at peak display. It's like, well, I need to defeat Kuvira because of balance for whatever reason. Uh, once again, if you're going to have a show about politics, you need to have something coherent to say about politics. Kuvira is bad when she's trying to help communities say, well, we will support you if you join us. That's bad. OK, then she's bad when she's a Stalinist totalitarian that I can buy. But she verges between one and the other uh, wild, with wild fluctuations. Just because the Earth Queen dies, suddenly it's massive chaos everywhere, but it's bad to try to normal to, to stabilize that. I don't know. It's just the other thing that I hated, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, we were robbed of a romance. We were robbed of a relationship. They could have shown, I, I realized it was 2014. It was the first time in a kids show we ever get a same-sex relationship. But I felt robbed, damn it! It was just the sort of hard turn in the last thirty seconds. Oh, oh, oh! They're together, and I'm like, "What? All right? Could 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 you give me a little bit of build up towards this at least?" What did you think about that? I mean, Parker? at the very end, yeah. It could have been just. It could have been just a friendship. Well, that's just it. I don't think they let. That that's the problem. They were trying to play it both ways. They wanted to be like, "Oh, so so." Just so you know. It is 100% a romantic relationship. They, they've they clarified that a, a, outside of the show, in the comics, 100%. Like, it is absolutely a romantic relationship.
1: All right. But, I did not know that. All right. No, and then, yeah, that was weak sauce. I then. don't
2: blame you because on the show, it's the classic sort of queer baiting nonsense that we've seen in tons of other, uh, other media. It's like, oh, they're just good friends. There's enough room for people to think that it's just, you know, a close friendship. Ugh. I get it. I get it. Now, I, I was outraged. All right. But I get it. It was 2014. It was the first time it happened. I am told by media commenters I trust and people in the queer community that the queer community, broadly speaking, is down with it and thinks it was good representation. I don't see how that's the case. But then again, I've been completely spoiled by Steven Universe and other shows that were very, very much on board with same-sex relationships, not explicitly, but very clearly presented on screen in a supportive way, rather than just sort of, let's hold hands and smile at each other. Oh, come on. I love me my romances, Walker, and Korra, with its with the worst love triangle ever, and that complete cop-out in the fourth season, has robbed me. I had to... That's
1: made it all bad, but like I said, I was talking to you earlier, I think Milo saved that whole season. <laughs> except for, like you said, the Milo-only episode. But other than that, Milo in good doses is good Milo. I
2: agree with you, Milo is solid. They had a clip show, Walker. There was an episode that was a clip show. How
1: dare they? It's true. It is done very frequently in animes, but it's usually done, for those who don't know, uh, anime usually lasts for 12 episodes, and then they are done. That is probably 99% of anime. Every so often, they will get a second season, but it usually comes... Uh, one to two to five years after the first season. In those cases, it makes sense that you do a, a sort of clip catch-up what happened for those who didn't watch the first season and say, oh my God, this show got a second season. That doesn't happen very often. So let's, you know, get everyone up to speed and then they only have to watch the second season. This all makes sense. But to have a clip show sort of mid-season sort of it was filler.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, to tie it back to anime, usually this style of filler clip show episode is actually, I think, more akin to the old style. Back in the day, when they were adapting a manga series or a light novel series, they would just start adapting it while the series was ongoing, but the anime episodes would it would air and air more material more quickly than a weekly manga serialization would. So the show would catch up to the manga. Then you've got a problem, but you still got to keep airing episodes. That's when you start introducing filler. One of the classic kinds of filler is indeed your clip show episode, where you only need a small amount of new footage and you're not advancing the story. So that, I think, is is more—they don't do that anymore. Now, as you say, it's mostly like 12 or 13 episodes. You pause for a while, and then if there's popular enough, you have another season and do some more. Well, Naruto had, I think,
1: I don't, I didn't, I want to say because I don't know, but I think it was almost like a few seasons yes. that were completely invented yep. out of the manga yeah, filler arcs, yeah, because they were so far ahead, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And the, the the tragedy is, of course, there can be good anime adaptations, which because they have to introduce a filler arc, get canceled because the filler arc sucks so hard. This this is what happened with Rurouni Kenshin back in the day. Anyway. But going back to Korra, the other thing, the, the final note that I'll make about Korra season four, is the unfortunate thing is, is that Korra doesn't really end, it just stops. Like, I mean, yes, I didn't really like the last three seasons, so it's not like I wanted a season five, but at the end of Avatar The Last Airbender, it was the end. They did the thing. Like, Julie, they did the thing. Like, Korra, it's just like, eh? They didn't even, like, fit it, fully resolve anything. It's just like, well, I guess Kuvira's in jail, Uh, the show's over, I guess? Like, what? Well, Julie got married. That was a nice ending. I don't know how I feel about that. Honestly, it's a little creepy. Relationships between subordinates, uh, between bosses and the subordinates, especially. Uh, I don't know. I'm a, true. i <laughs> that you say it out loud. Yeah, that that. Yeah,
1: never mind. I mean, the, that's that was bad.
2: Having read the comics, she does a very good job of keeping him in line. But it's a little, it's a little awkward. Anyway well listeners thank you for joining us on this roller coaster of a ride through all seven seasons of Avatar cartoons we appreciate your patience and maybe we'll talk about something else next time
1: we decide that we're going to go through the several seasons of Gumby and Pokey (laughs) be prepared everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or Mc Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day